I shall now turn to a brief introduction to our speaker for the opening remark of this conference, Professor William Kirby. Professor Kirby is T.M. Chen Professor of China Studies at Harvard University and Spangler Family Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. He is a Harvard University Distinguished Service Professor. He serves as Director of Fairbank Center of Chinese Studies and Chairman of Harvard China Fund. A historian of modern China, Professor Kirby's work examines China's business, economical, and political development in an international context. He has written on the evolution of modern Chinese business, Chinese corporate law and company structure, the history of freedom in China, the international socialist economy of the 1950s, relations across the Taiwan Street, and China's relations with Europe and America. I first encountered Professor Kirby's work on Sino-German relations in Republican China when I was a student in Cambridge University studying wars in China and China's military modernization. As we all know, the 1911 revolution started with the mutiny of the self-strengthening army, Ziqiangjun, stationed in Wuchang. The self-strengthening army was founded and trained until 1898 by 35 German officers under Major Baron von Rendersing, who, Heading the training of Chinese officers, served both as instructor and commanding officers at different levels of the Chinese army. In the military conflicts after the Wuchang uprising, the revolutionary's main enemy was the newly created army, Xinjian Lujun, under Yuan Shikai, which also largely followed the German system of organization, training, and drill instructions. I bring this point up because I think that it is significant for us to recognize the international context of the 1911 revolution and the development of Chinese modernization. It is not an accident that the struggling ideas in modernizing China, it being constitutionalism, republicanism, nationalism, and of course, communism, all had their more or less distinct national origins from the West. Generations of Chinese revolutionaries, reformers, and intellectuals engaged in intensive debates and sometimes large-scale military confrontations because of their different ideas adopted from different Western origins. In a sense, a history of the past century of China is a manifestation of this grand debate. Professor Kirby, with his prestigious extensive scholarly works and experiences in Chinese history in international context, is thus in a great position to tell us about his perspectives about the revolution and the Chinese republics after it. In the recent two decades, it seems to have been a fashion among American and some British critics to adopt the astrological view of history and harp on the sense of ending. I, however, firmly believe that the present company all share a buoyant sense of beginning a long vista of many conversations and discussions of the Republican history of China to come. Discussions which will count more participants, range over wider fields, and approach nearer to the ideal Chinese Republic, both in mind and in reality. So without further ado, please welcome Professor Kirby for his opening remark, China's Republican Century. 
女士们、先生们、同事们、同学们，早上好！我感到非常荣幸能够和大家今天早上讨论一百一百年前发生的那段历史和它的意义。在过去的一个月，在台北和在北京，海峡两岸的领导人都在纪念辛亥革命。一百周年，这场革命，呃，导致了中华民国和中华人民共和国的成立。今天早上，我想谈谈上世纪发生的事情，以及我们可以从中学到的教训。我特别想呃谈呃一下，从一九一一到。二零一一年，呃，这一世纪里，中国的几个呃共和政体啊、呃，在中国的第一共和设计的终点，我们都想知道下一个设计中国将会如何发展。接下来，麻烦你们一下。请允许我用我的母语英语来发言，可以吗？啊，谢谢谢谢。So let me start by warmly warmly welcoming you all to Harvard,、uh, a university that was founded in the late Ming Dynasty. No one at Harvard knew that,、uh, and even the Ming did not know it was the late Ming. We are here at the end of China's first Republican century, and we are also here at the beginning of what so many people say is the Chinese century, the 21st century, the Chinese century. And if you, those of you who have come from China, if you stop at any airport kiosk between Beijing and Boston, you see all of these books: "The Rise of China," "China Awakes," "The Dragon Awakes." When China rules the world,、uh, or what, one of my students has written a book,、uh, "As China Goes, So Goes the World." But let's go back a hundred years. If you were to go over to our big library here, Widener Library, and look at the books that were written about China one hundred years ago, you would find titles like this: "China Awake," "The Awakening of China," "The Dragon Awakes," "China Awakened." Rising China, Sun Yat-sen, and the Awakening of China, and my favorite of this wonderful genre: New Forces in Old China, an Unwelcome but Inevitable Awakening. So this is why being a China specialist in this country is such easy work. All of the books that are being written today were actually written a hundred years ago. <laughs> Now. China was at the edge of a great century a hundred years ago, at the time of the Xinhai Guomin. What happened? What lessons can we draw from it? In 1911, the Great Qing Empire, the strongest and richest and best-governed empire in the world, in 1811, the Great Qing Empire was on the edge of collapse. Gone was the wily Empress Dowager. Some years ago, I was dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences here at Harvard, which controls about half of Harvard University. And I had a portrait of the Empress Dowager outside my office—a wonderful portrait from the Fog Art Museum, kind of for protection. 
uh, as it were, times being what they were. Uh, but we hosted, during the time that I was dean, we, I had the honor, the great honor, of hosting Premier Wen Jiabao. And when Premier, before Premier, the Premier came, a number of Chinese officials came to visit me to talk about the visit. And they would always come and they would look at this portrait and they say, why do you have this picture of this terrible woman outside of your office? And I would tell them two things. First of all, if she was a man, you might not think she was so terrible. And second, it may just be that if it weren't for her, you wouldn't have a country. She kept the empire together, not by nice means, so that others could inherit it. That wasn't her idea, but it is, in part, what happened. But she would be gone in 1908, replaced, but not really replaced, by good old Pui, who would spend his youth on the palace rooftops of, uh, of the palace, while China became a republic, first under Sun Zhongshan, and then under President Yuan Shikai. The first republic in Asia, a grand historical experiment, and naturally an experiment so important that Harvard had to get involved in it. President Yuan Shikai asked the president of Harvard, Charles Eliot, for advice, how to make a modern constitution for this new country, the Republic of China, the first republic in Asia. And President Eliot recommended an advisor, his close friend, and a leading political scientist, Frank Goodenough. And when two years, Frank Goodenough had drafted two constitutions. The first one would have made, actually did make, Yuan Shikai president for life. And the second one would have made him emperor if he had not died soon. So this was Harvard's contribution to Chinese democracy. And it may be why we have not been asked for much advice ever since. Since then, we all know, Chinese politics took a decidedly military turn. And its leaders would be, really, from Sun Zhongshan, Yuan Shikai, Zhang Jieshi. Uh, here is Peng Dehuai giving the international salute of the 1930s in Yan'an, or Mao Zedong. What one sees about all of these guys is that they are quite literally cut from the same cloth. That is, its leaders and China's leaders would be military people. And this is a militarization of China that in some sense, one can argue, continues up to the present day. <laughs> this, is, this is that moment two years after President Hu Jintao has been president of the country and chairman of the party. Only two years after that is he president of the military commission. And if you want to know who is number one in China from 1924 to the present, from Chiang Kai-shek's greatest title was not president, but it was Zhang Weiyuanzhang, president and chairman of the military commission. In any event, it really does matter. Um, but whatever else one can say about this militarization, it allowed China to become, if we go back, ah, shoot, uh, if we go back, a little bit. Back, back to Zhang Jiexi. It allowed China to become, by 1945, what it was not in 1911, a great power. A power that could not be defeated either by Japan in World War II or shortly thereafter by the United States in Korea. The foundation, my point here is, of China's current global strength, and indeed its military strength, this is not simply a matter of the last 10 or 20 or 30 years. They have been building for some time. In fact, 
China's current strength is a century in the making. A century ago, China was also on the edge of a second revolution in business. This is the story of the first golden age of Chinese capitalism, economic activity that began and spread out from Shanghai in an age when Shanghai, not Tokyo, not Hong Kong, Shanghai was the center of East Asian commerce uh, when Shanghai was home to China's first middle class. Uh, Shanghai, the great and gleaming city when it was new here uh, in, in the 1930s, home at least to middle class aspirations. I have no idea if she's middle class, but she, those who seek to buy her bicycle might be. Uh, middle class aspirations of life in the Shanghai suburbs that for a long time would not be available until actually more recent, more recent times. Uh, a, a dream uh, of a golden age uh, that would be undone by the Sino-Japanese War, be undone by the Civil War, by the first decades of communism, the great inflation, not the least, the division of the world into red and blue states. Uh, this woman didn't quite get the picture uh, in the early 1950s that the days of the previous bourgeoisie were over. But as we all know, once the moment opened up in 1979, at least aspirations for a greater material life would return to China. People who had not had their hair done in 20 years would trust machines that had not been used in 20 years uh, here in 1978. Uh, we would see in our own lifetimes, or at least in your parents' lifetimes, so many of you are so young, streets in the same neighborhood moving from situations such as this to this to this here in Beijing and Li Kaxing's enormous emporium on Chang'anjie. Uh, and we would see aspirations of a material life and of a middle-class life in the far reaches of the empire. I don't know who these women are, but I do know something about shoes, and those are, um, anyway, never mind. <laughs> I did an HBS case on the red wine industry and how red wine has come to define uh, both middle-class sensibility and official sensibility, and how it has become the, the banquet drink of both officials and business people. And it's really a great case, uh, I urge you to look at it, because the, the, I have a graduate student working on the question, how many banquets are there every day in China? Uh, he's been working on it for five years, I have no idea, but they... Uh, and you see a growth here, this is a company that, from the Zhengda Jituan, the Zhengda, the CP group, the biggest agribusiness company in the world. It's a company that begins in the Republican period overseas, comes back and reinvests in China in 1978. Uh, and is changing the way food is raised and distributed. Look at that happy baby. And uh, certifiably green eggs uh, for the Chinese consumer. But I was reminded both of the present and the past uh, in January 2010 when I was in Dongbei in Manchuria, at a place called Yabuli, for the 10th anniversary of the Zhongguoqie, Jia Luntan. The theme of that was the last de golden decade, 2000 to 2010, of Chinese business. And it was attended, as you can see, by some of the most extraordinary and inventive entrepreneurs in the world, now all of them here in Chinese. And its leader, a true visionary, Mr. Chen Dongsheng, remarked that they had a heritage, a heritage that was not just 10 years, but a heritage that was at least 100 years. And he remarked back to the first golden age of Chinese entrepreneurships 
in the, in the teens, 20s, and 30s, especially what he called the golden decade of nationalist rule in Nanjing from 1927 to 1937. And even harkened back a bit further to the great entrepreneur and scholar Zhang Zhen, the real founder of the concept of Chinese corporate social enterprise. Models, Mr. Chen Dongshan said, for us in China still today. So the point here is that in some sense the foundations of China's current entrepreneurial class are also at least a century in the making. We know, of course, how overseas Chinese capital began to return almost the moment China reopened its doors in 1978, a huge part of the story of the last 30 years. But the story of the reemergence of China's domestic entrepreneurs is not so well written. In one of my Harvard Business School cases, I tell the story of Mr. Lu Guanqiu of the Wanshang Jituan. Um, whom I just saw a few weeks ago in Hangzhou. Mr. Lu is a very interesting fellow. He tried to start a company at the height of the Great Leap Forward. Not a good idea, as it turns out. He also tried to start a company at the height of the Cultural Revolution. These are not his partners. He was born to be an entrepreneur, and unfortunately for him, he was born, it seemed, at the absolute worst time in all of Chinese history to be an entrepreneur. But he never, ever gave up. And his Wanshan company, which he established in 1969 to repair tractors, gradually made it into a state plan in 1979 uh, and became central to the development of automobile parts for what he could not then have predicted would be the greatest automobile market in the world. This is the same place, in a place called Ningwe, outside of Hangzhou, 69, 79. This is here today, uh, the industrial base number one in Hangzhou, the exact same physical location. Uh, and this is the North American headquarters because uh, the Wanshan uh, the Group now owns about 20 American automobiles. It's a Chinese company beginning in a beginning in a people's commune that is now a global company, also now a family company, again in a very traditional fashion. And if you ask Mr. Lu, what is the secret of your success, Mr. Lu? He's a very smart man, so he thanks the government um, <laughs> for his success. That's... But if you ask Mr. Lu, Mr. Lu, what's the real secret of your success? Which I did, and he told me, well, Mr. Kirby, he told me this. As long as there is a human race, there will be Chinese. And as long as there is a market, you will have people from Zhejiang. <laughs> this is more the genetic theory of Chinese economic development. Now a third area where China was on the edge of a revolution a century ago is also the vision of Sun Yat-sen, of Sun Zhongshan. Infrastructure. The great, Sun Yat-sen is remembered for many things, San Min Jui. He's known in Taiwan because he's on the money. But what he's mo his greatest influence, in my view, is really his plan for the physical reshaping of China in his Shiye Jihua, is the translation of his international development of China, when he called for 100,000 miles of roads, when he called for 100,000 miles of railroad, when he called for the building of the Shansha Gongcheng, the Three Gorges Dam, his idea in 1921, when he called for China to manufacture automobiles so inexpensively, and I quote, that every Chinese may drive one, something that seems to be happening uh, today if you're on the streets 
uh, of Beijing. We are in the age of what Sun Yat-sen once called technocracy, a phrase that was translated into Chinese in his era as, quote, the dictatorship of the engineers. Interesting phrase. It's true, it seems to me, that few forces on earth, in China or in any other country, can match the combined power of such a strong government and engineering ambition. And what we see today in China is in many ways Sun Yat-sen's not political vision, but material vision uh, fulfilled. Here's the highway system of the Ming. So China has always been into infrastructure, of course. But if we look at the different parts of the National Expressway system and just go them through them very dramatically here, there's nothing like this anywhere else in the world. And surely, surely only in China would one have the ambition to build a highway to Taiwan. <laughs> I don't know if anyone in Taiwan knows about this yet. And I don't know, you know, maybe a big question is who's going to collect the tolls? Uh, but in, in any event, it's a remarkable sense of ambition. And, and you know, you, if in Taiwan, one should worry because, you know, what's on a five-year plan tends to get done. But in any event, you see this, of course, airports, the likes of which we will never see in my lifetime in this country. Uh, the, the Great Three Gorges Dam, uh, which has fundamentally transformed central and western China. I was on a highway from Turfan to Urumqi a few years ago uh, in the middle of the Gobi Desert. And I thought, well, I'll see if my cell phone works out here. And I called up a friend from in Hong Kong. Perfect reception. Ludicrously perfect reception. Uh, telecommunications, people in Kashgar going to watch the Olympics, whether they want to or not. Uh, and I thought, there's, we did a Harvard Business School case on uh, China Mobile in Yunnan. Here's a happy grandmother talking to her grandson. Here's a farmer finding out about rising grain prices. Who knows what he's really doing. Uh, but to test this infrastructure state, I went as far as I could in the empire to Lhasa, uh, to the far reaches. And I figured here, maybe my cell phone will not work. Maybe it, because of physical difficulties, all these mountains, or maybe some political difficulties. I didn't know. But may one tea, no problems. Uh, <laughs> And we in the United States are so embarrassed when one thinks about this because, you know, I, my cell phone, which is over in my pocket, you know, it barely works uh, here in Cambridge. It doesn't work at all in this building. Uh, and every time I go home to Lexington, Massachusetts, it, it cuts out. And, you know, you're here in Boston. You all know the great infrastructure projects that have defined China. You know what the big infrastructure project for Boston is for the next 10 years? It's an extension of the Green Line. <laughs> A 19th century, I mean, it's so embarrassing. What can you do? <laughs> a fourth area in which China was on the cusp of a revolution a century ago is that of education. Until then, an education in the classics is what made a person and indeed what made the country great. You should be thankful that 105 years ago, you would be doing examinations or six years ago in a compound like this. For the last Qing examinations, you would come in, you would stay in this compound for three days. You would bring your own food, your own water, and your own waste bucket. And the only way to get out once the exam began was to die. And if, they, and if you died, they wouldn't open the gates to get you out because it's a very secure compound. They would throw your body over the wall. So when I hear people complain these days about the Gaokao or about the GREs, I say, get a life. You have no idea what your, what your predecessors went through. But 
this, it, from a short period of time, China moved from an education based on the classics to one in which with Tsinghua Yuan and other modern universities, China developed in the first half of the 20th century one of the most dynamic systems of higher education in the world. This is a gymnasium in what's now, uh, I think it's Zhongnan Dashui in, in Nanjing. It's part of what used to be Zhongnan Dashui, uh, National Central University. In this gymnasium in 1919, John Dewey and Bertrand Russell gave a series of very important lectures, uh, knowing that they were at a pace of importance in higher education. China developed state-run institutions such as National Central University, modeled on the university that is the model for all great universities, the University of Berlin. That's why it has National Central University, a little Brandenburg Gate, welcoming you into it. Uh, we have great state-run institutions like Beida, like Shanghai Jiao Tong University, but also a creative set of private colleges, this is still Zhongyang Dashui, and universities, Yanjing University, St. John's University, Peking Union Medical College, one of the best in the world. All of this would be swept away in the 1950s and 1960s, but the traditions and excellence of this, memories of this excellence would remain and would help to fuel the current great revolution uh, of Chinese higher education. And in my view, no story is more central to the 21st century. Will the 21st century be China's century? Then the story of education. And it's something that I've been studying and working on now since my time as dean. Uh, and you can see it. It's a pretty big change from this, the reentry, the reopening of Chinese universities, to this, just one of the many beautiful new campuses, the new campus of Chongqing University, uh, which I visited uh, uh, several, several years ago, thanks to a, uh, uh, Professor Zhang Qi from, from uh, Chongqing Dashui, uh, uh, a great historian of Republican China, uh, a place that has been built, the second campus of Chongqing University, bigger than all of Harvard University, and I think even more beautiful than all of Harvard University, built as if overnight, beautifully landscaped, you shan, you shui, everything magnificent. Um, uh, here's the old campus of Hua Shida, Hua Dong Shifan in Shanghai. Here it is today with a library physically bigger than Widener Library. And you could go on and on. You all know about this mammoth expansion. And again, the thing is a, a little bit, it's just hard to take coming. Harvard University has had a new campus across the Charles River for 15 years. And in that 15 years, we have built nothing. Go visit it, you'll see. Um, and you see, uh, a moment of great entrepreneurialism of international universities in China, the University of Nottingham, Ningbo, which looks just like the University of Nottingham, Nottingham. Xi'an Wai Shi Shui Yuan, where I did a Harvard Business School case. Experimentation, <laughs> experimentation in private universities. So this president, say what you want, President Huang Tang does not have to worry about his tenure as president of Xi'an Wai Shi Shui Yuan. He owns 55% of Xi'an Wai Shi Shui Yuan, and a private equity firm owns the rest. And he has set up branch campuses in Dalian, in Suzhou, and the last I saw him, he was looking for real estate in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, look at Duke Kunshan University, uh, outside of Shanghai, an enormous the most important Sino-foreign university to be built, being built just as we meet here, since Yanjing University in the Republican period. It is a moment of great experimentation, uh, and, and it's a challenge, I would say, to 
well, American universities. American universities have at the moment a very high uh, reputation in the world. Uh, Harvard's reputation, you must know, I, and I, if you're from coming just directly, you know, Harvard's reputation is much stronger the farther away you are from Cambridge, Massachusetts, kind of an inverse relationship. Um, and when I was dean at Harvard, I paid no attention to all of these international rankings, like Shanghai Jiao Tong, Times of London, and so on, as long as Harvard was ranked number one. Um, but the fact is, and this is what matters here, back in 1911, if we had had the kind of rankings that Shanghai Jiao Tong University has, Harvard would not have been number one. It would not have been number 10. It would have been lucky to be in the top 20. Eight of the top 10 universities in the world in 1911 would have been German universities. The other two, probably British universities. Today, according to Shanghai Jiao Tong Daxue, at least, not one of the top 50 universities in the world is a German university. The Germans disagree. Nevertheless, it shows you that the world's changed. And that my point in this is that we are all an act in progress. And if Harvard is any good now, it's in part because it is centuries in the making. And if China is in some measure to define the 21st century, it is because of its recovery and rise in the 20th century. Let me now turn to my final area, a fifth area, on which China was not only on the edge but over the edge of a revolution a hundred years ago, politics. One can speak of the Republican century's enormous success in defending the territory inherited from the Qing. It's gradual, fitful, but ultimate success in economic development. It's consistent obsession with the physical remaking of several new Chinas and its investment in education. But how do we assess its record in politics? It has been a Republican century, a century of contending Chinese republics, and it is also China's national century. We must remember that China is, of course, home to an ancient civilization, the longest, continuous, in my view, greatest civilization on Earth. But China is also a very young country, which as a political entity did not exist until 1912. It was a republic formed by not one, as in the United States, but a series of declarations of independence. It was a republic with a new flag, with a new calendar, and at least one would-be founder, one Guofu. Sun Yat-sen said early on, all our people are equal, and all enjoy equal rights. The president of the republic, he said, will be publicly chosen by the people of our country. The parliament will be made up of members publicly chosen by the people of our country. A constitution of the Chinese Republic will be enacted and every person will abide by it. Now surely it is an unhappy commentary on a century of Chinese republicanism that the largest and fairest election ever to take place on the Chinese mainland took place in the first years of the Republic with over 40 million registered voters, some 25% of the male population, with debates free and open and reported in the press. This is kind of preparation later on for, for what it means to be a Republican citizen. There were many frustrations, as we all know. There was a belief by some that in the Republic's first years, if only the proper constitution were written, Republican government would flourish. But as Hu Shi once observed, 
The strongest supporters of Constitution were always men out of power, not those in power. And Republican constitutions from the many of, uh, of the beginning in the Beiyang period through the Guomindangfu period right up to the present day, their purpose is in part to keep opposition from gaining power. And although Sun Yat-sen died in 1925, his principle, his later principle of Yidang Zhiguo, a government by the party, meant that China under nationalist rule would not be a parliamentary republic like the first short-lived republic of 1912 or 13, nor would it be a presidential republic on the model of Yuan Shikai's regime. It would be a party state. That is to say, a one-party state. We'll come back to Mr. Stone. A one-party state. Uh, tutelage was to last six years. For those under Guomindang rule on the Chinese mainland or on Taiwan, tutelage lasted 60 years. And when the Guomindang was ousted from the mainland in 1949, it was replaced by the other Chinese party state, that of the resurgent communists, in a continuation and indeed an intensification of the political culture of the party state. Both the Guomindang and the Gongchangdang were students of the Soviet Union, and in the Gongchangdang case, especially of Stalin. This helps to explain the continuity of leadership cults in 20th century China. The party state always had a leader with a capital L. Sun Yat-sen extracted loyalty, personal loyalty oath from his followers, at least from 1914, when he took on the title of Zongli, or leader. Zhang Kai-shek as Zong Tsai, or director, general director. Mao Zedong as Zhu Xi. These titles sound simple when translated. Even in Chinese, they can sound simple. But they do not capture the depth of the domination of these individuals over their followers. Sun Yat-sen's portrait uh, would be eclipsed in numbers only by Mao Zedong's. This is a rare moment when Mao Zedong would be sharing the stage with Sun Yat-sen after 1949. This is the 50th anniversary of the Xinhai Guoming in Beijing in, 19, in 1961. Uh, 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 and looking at the, uh, we know that in the history of the People's Republic, the People's Republic in its first 26 years was more dependent on its central figure, on its Weidara Lingxiao, than had been any previous government. No study of the political system of the People's Republic can ignore the dominance of Mao Zedong. And even within a leadership of hardened revolutionaries, the Chinese Communist Party would be inconceivable in those days without Mao Zedong. Uh, his leadership was even written into the PRC Constitution. And although after his death in 1976, the Chinese Communist Party would admit of his mistakes, the legitimacy of the regime had become so entwined with the person of Mao Zedong that even 35 years later, no critical scholarly inquiry into the catastrophe of his misrule is possible. On Taiwan, by contrast, Zhang Jiexue, not quite by contrast, continued his personal dictatorship until his death in 1975, always venerating the memory of Sun Yat-sen. The Zhang family dominance persisted until his son and successor, Zhang Jingguo, well-trained also in the Soviet Union, would die in 1988. But the younger Zhang, Zhang Jingguo, would act where his father had only talked to move Taiwan toward a more open political system. And the toleration of opposition parties that Zhang Jingguo permitted in the mid-1980s surely was an indispensable step on Taiwan's road to democracy 
even though we must understand it was undertaken in part to preserve Kuomintang rule. The Kuomintang had had elections for 50 years before it lost the election of 2000. And it's fair to say that the Kuomintang had elections never thinking that elections meant that you could lose. Elections are meant to be won or bought or whatever. Uh, and hence the enormous shock of actually losing in the year 2000. The basic difference, perhaps the most basic difference in the political cultures between the two party states on either side of the strait in the second half of the 20th century was that the Kuomintang's political domination had greater limits. As Hu Shi said when he left Beijing to go to Taipei in 1949, he said this to the nationalist army officers who were taking him on a plane, quote, the only reason why liberal elements like me prefer to string along with people like you is that under your regime, we at least enjoy the freedom of silence. That freedom would be granted to the, people's, the citizens of the People's Republic only with the death of Mao Zedong in 1976. But thereafter, the political world of the mainland would begin to look more like that of Taiwan in the era of Chiang Kai-shek, experimenting with political reform at the local level, people being accorded ever greater realms of autonomy and freedom in their homes, on the streets, and in their economy, if not necessarily in the polity. Well, what lessons finally can we draw from all of this? The emphasis on personal leadership surely reflects some of the great weaknesses of the party state which have defined Chinese republics. The inability of ruling parties to work together with civilian elites to erect an enduring self-replicating system of government. To be sure, even after the end of party tutelage and even after democratization on Taiwan, certain habits of the party state died hard. Under Li Donghui, after a decade of democratic reforms, the Kuomintang Central Executive Committee still met every Wednesday to set the agenda for the government cabinet meetings on Thursday. Well, Taiwan's elections of 2000 and 2008 may have some important lessons for the mainland and for the brother party across the strait. The Kuomintang was humiliated by its loss in 2000, but it had set in place an electoral procedure by which it could regain power successfully and peacefully, as it did four years ago under our Hafo Xiaoyo, Mr. Ma Ying-jeou. <laughs> Maybe that's the secret of his success. <laughs> well, what does the future hold? Well, as a historian, of course, I have no professional responsibility to predict the future. And the past, in fact, is always easier to predict than the future. But at the end of China's first Republican century, the key to China's Republican future would appear to lie in the great, still unresolved question of 1911. What kind of political system will, in the long run, take the place of the old empire? Chinese Republican governments have been very successful in so many dimensions, in defending territory and sovereignty, in promoting business and enterprise, in building infrastructure, in investing in education. The question is, how will the next century take up the original challenge of the last to build a political system, to build a minguo? I don't know the answer. Uh, but I do know, as I listen to the speeches of Premier Wen Jiabao, both when he was here at Harvard and more recently in China, 
or when I listened to, uh, to President Hu Jintao at the 100th anniversary of Tsinghua University when he urged the need or talked about the need to go back to the roots of the liberal ideas that had founded Tsinghua Yuan a century ago, when I listen to those speeches, I do have hope. Will the 21st century be the Chinese century? Maybe not, if by that we mean that this is a new, unusual, or exclusive thing. There have been many Chinese centuries before, and I am sure that there will be many Chinese centuries after this. I do hope that the 21st century will be a century not just for China, but for all of us in a world of shared aspirations and common problems. But I think it may yet be a distinctively Chinese century in military power, in business strength, in engineering capacity, and in education. And with all of these strengths, China and its partners can surely thrive. And with political leadership, in a matter that harkens back to the ideals of the original republic, China has the capacity not just to thrive in the world, but to lead the world. And I have hoped that the next generations of leaders across greater China will in the next century be true to the promise of Dr. Sun Yat-sen in 1911 to create a minyo, minzhi, minxiang de zhengfu. As Dr. Sun put it, the realm, tianxia, the realm, exists to serve all, not to serve the few, but to serve all. This is the true meaning of Dr. Sun's vision. Tianxia, wei gong. Thank you very much.